Fireside Chats, the weekly podcast where commies shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. Tonight, Rosa, Donald, and I install the Xeno Feminist Manifesto by the Laboria Cubonics Collective. Rebooting our natures in five, four, three, two, one. I thought that a lot of the points it made were kind of almost a return to classic orthodox Marxist productivism, but in a more interesting way because it's saying that technology is actually a good thing and has liberatory potential and that the development of productive forces actually does open new avenues of freedom for humans. They're not even just saying that technology is a good thing. They're saying that alienation is a good thing, which you yeah, don't and get. that's like the ultimate troll for like Frankfurt School Marxist you, or like, you know Hegelian Marxist when their whole critique is based on alienation. And they're you, saying no, you need to become more alienated. I mean, yeah, you certainly, but you certainly don't get that in Marx in general. <laughs> like, yeah, you you get that dialectical, you know, tearing up this roots can produce the conditions for more freedom. But this takes a sort of shortcut, something that Zizek wrote about Mao, and it apparently has this character. It shares this in common with a lot of the kind of Deleuzian nihilist elements where like instead of going for the negation of the negation of like liberalism, you just really are excited about the negation of liberalism. <laughs> You're excited about everything falling apart. Yeah. Nick Land takes this to like a even further extreme, what he refers to as cosmic nihilism, where basically like the breakdown of like centralization will lead to a point in which like even like all individuals become almost completely independent from each other. So like, every human becomes a state. Yeah, basically. It's like, like, it's like an ANCAP fantasy. Yeah, it is. It is directly an ANCAP fantasy. It's literally that, like self-ownership taken to its like most absurd and final conclusion, paleo-libertarianism, but made more absurd and violent and cruel. Yeah, but this seems somehow. to be kind of taking the whole accelerationist thing in kind of a different direction and saying, because yeah. I did, there was a lot of similar, I, I did get, you know, an accelerationist kind of vibe from this, you know, this idea that productive forces can be liberatory and it's, we don't want to like go back to nature and it's very critical of naturalism, which is this idea of, you know, appealing to nature and any, anything that nature is inherently oppressive and the more we're alienated from nature the more free we are it seems which is almost an exact like a uh, negation of um frankfurt school types and um eventually the primitivist types who kind of come from this idea that we need to abolish all mediations and i've always been skeptical of that because it's it's a question not so much of abolishing mediations to me as as much as we want so much as we want to abolish mediations that are bad yeah like you can you can trace that sort of critique through like heidegger and like just straight up fascists if you really well heidegger was a straight up fascist but that's 
Yeah, that yeah. sort of fetishism for organic communities and the Volkish way of life. Well, it's, an, it's a critique it in, of like, abstraction. Straight up itself. Nazi terms. Well, yeah, is, I was, was going to say, though, it's a, it's a critique of abstraction itself. And I think when you critique abstraction to a certain point, you just end up with this back to the organic community or, you know, we need to abolish language, as John Zerzan, John Zerzan says. There are more uh, reasonable conclusions that one can get to, yeah. Whereas I think what Marx is talking about is ending the alienation of the laborer to from the means of production so that, um, you know, the means of production are no longer a force alienating to humanity that dominates us, but rather something that we have collective control over. But I don't think this means necessarily that there's going to be no kind of mediation between us and, you know, the means of production in society. The early Marx is definitely a little more on that wavelength. And yeah, but I think as Marx... sensuous existence and do away with all of these potentially Semitic uh, abstract things. Yeah, but I think that Marx... I do... I actually think that Marx does mature beyond that. And... You know. I, I do think the existential kind of question of alienation is super relevant and is probably why a lot of people that don't have to think about work that much will still end up getting into Marxism. This text, like the move away from like this sort of like fetishism for nature as a concept is like the rejection of nature is something that's like sort of bound up with queer liberation and like trans liberation. Like I, I don't even think like transness would be really as we know it now would be really possible if we were just sort of relying on like the kind of sort of like communal relations that the sort of nature fetishists would want, I suppose. Like, so essentially you're saying that transsexuality is a sort of product of capitalist capitalism, allowing breaking away traditional gender bond, traditional patriarchal bonds and it's just yeah, like it allows people to um overcome biological limitations that were imposed before essentially yeah. if that makes sense i had this conversation before with other people but like basically like there's a desire within like the trans community to like link back to like earlier conceptions of like third genders and things like that and it's just uh it goes into problematic territory sometimes like there's like two spirited people in like some native north america weirder conceptions of transness in like afghanistan that are deeply problematic for reasons that uh, it's more pedestrian rather than like a gender uh, gender thing but yeah, I don't know if like, we're qualified to make a critique of all the third gender or trans traditions in indigenous society. I mean, yeah, I think the yeah, point is, I think, that, I think I know where you're, you're getting at, though. Well, I yeah, think that the thing is, the thing is that these things are like more or less different from transness as it currently exists. That's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, because like, there's this narrative that oh, we were born this way, so you should accept us because of that. But the thing is, like, why does it fucking matter? Like, I should be able to choose what my gender is. And I think yeah. that the, actually the, I, it's a pretty radical form of freedom, you know, the, the freedom to choose your gender. And I think that's, you know, very progressive. Yeah, but I guess there's a, so there's a few considerations, right? First of all, 
there is the sense of compulsion that a lot of queer people feel, similar to how a lot of gay people feel, where everything in their environment is telling them to do one thing, that they feel compelled beyond all incentive to do something else. And the question is, what is that, right? So that's one thing that leads people to go to natural explanations, which I'm skeptical of natural explanations, but you know, having lived this, I'm pretty sympathetic to people that are like, what, what's up with me? Secondly, the, um, I think it's important to be universalist in a sense and think of the variant gender traditions in indigenous societies, in non-Western and non-Anglo like societies throughout history as being manifestations of the same human potential and phenomenon that's being expressed in contemporary nominal transness as we know it, as we are participating in. Um, like those things are in some fundamental way, in some fundamental material way, like the same part of the same human uh, process and diversity. Um, but, and then thirdly, yeah, there is this nominal notion, this newer notion of transness that does seem to be uh, uh, an outgrowth of bourgeois decadence. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I mean, capitalist, capitalist productive forces. Well, it's just modernity itself, I think. I think that a lot of people mistake modernity with capitalism in many cases. Well, does, it, because does this emerge out of, you know, the Soviet Union? Like what, what other kind of modernity do we have to compare this to that like, generates a similar response? Well, much of like left accelerationism is like trying to realize the technological forces that are within capitalism and trying to rip them away from like capitalism itself and the markets. Yeah, it's like trying market. to imagine a, a form of modernity that isn't capitalist in a way. Which, which like, Nick Land openly critiques as, like, not really being accelerationist because, like, accelerationism comes out of, like, the sort of Deleuzian kind of tendency of, like, de um, of deterritorialization, which is just a fancy word for, like, mar like creative destruction. Like market atomization. Yeah, creative destruction, market atomization, and just like a continuing running nihilism, thirst for annihilation, if you will. Ha ha ha. Yeah. It's a reference, a book title. But yeah, basically it's like the destructive tendency of like accelerationism of the cybernetic culture research unit. I think the, the truth here about capitalism is that capitalism does have progressive aspects to it, and people will get mad if you say that, but what it does is that it does break down the home and the patriarchal family unit as a site of production, and breaking down this uh, you know patriarchal family structure does allow for a less heavy policing of gender, and therefore you know, biological norms are not so much expected to be conformed to because people are free from the direct domination of the patriarchal family more so. What the I mean, that's not to say that patriarchy is completely abolished under capitalism, but there is an element in which the fact that the household is no longer the site of labor, that patriarchal, where, you know, the father is the owner of the wife and children who are, you know, producing the surplus is, you know, that's no longer the main form of production. Whereas under right. the peasant mode of production or, or patriarchal mode of production, whatever you want to call it, it is the main point of production is the household. 
Right. There was like, well, within capitalism, there was more of like a solidification of like patriarchal social structure with the nuclear family in the mid 20th century and like social democracy as a whole. It was sort of like a period of relative stability and like sort of like a period of time in which like the working class was like well off or at least a certain part of the working class, mostly white, mostly non-queer sort of people but yeah, you still had the this, outsiders of society this, who would become yeah, heroes of this the new process world. ended up like breaking down and like out of this comes like yeah like gender sort of thing but at the same time you have in like what greater rights for black people and that sort of thing but at the same time you have like this breakdown in like communities and that sort of thing a general decline in the standards of living for like a large number of people in the united states and the broader western world and it's a lot of destruction but not a lot of creativity right yeah essentially yeah this is an um, attempt to kind of get at what the terms would be for articulating kind of positive gender freedom using technologies and straight up abolition. Yeah, they do right. argue for the abolition of gender, but not so much. But they also say let a thousand genders bloom or something like that, you know, yeah. where the abolition of gender isn't so much, you know, the complete destruction of any kind of gender identity, but rather fractalization of gender identity, Although, where yeah, gender true. identity is no longer mediated and compelled to follow a certain path according to these imposed biological norms. Well, not only biological norms, but I also think uh, what they don't want is to see the kind of like rigidity in, gen in third gender structure that you do see in some indigenous societies, the, the uh, rigidity and, and marginality, because you can have a non-binary system that's still oppressive and hierarchical and patriarchal. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so when I, the kind of gender abolition that says, you know, let one a thousand sexes bloom is the same kind that sees the multiplication of genders as the death by a thousand cuts of gender. As in like, we're not creating a bunch of new, very stable things. This is a yeah. part of a Deleuzian sort of melting down of, of, of an essence of, of, yeah. of a vital thing. I mean, uh, what, what would bring down gender more than like some person with like five or six gender pronouns or whatever, just fucking with like people like at that point, the whole thing just seems illegitimate and just falls apart on itself. Oh, it's like no it's longer that. a way to control minds and bodies. Gender is no longer something that regulates how bodies are used. And I got it falling in the post-structuralist terminology here, but it's, it's no longer becomes this policing part of society and how society is ordered that like determines the, the shape of the division of labor. Yeah. This, this is one of the genuine um, innovations of post-structuralist philosophy. It's like, you know, I rail about it a lot, but I think it's one of the good parts. And um, I, what I appreciate here is there's an attempt to do some kind of, so they're attacking naturalism. They're also attacking, they have a weird relationship with species naturalism and, and whatever. But um, but they're also looking for, they want like a universalist ethic that that is sort of anti-humanist. It's, it's one of those accelerationist things that you run into sometimes. Yeah, but, it's kind of, I didn't really understand that part because it was like, you know, post-structuralism has destroyed the past universalism, but in its ashes we can create this new universalism that's a true authentic universalism. 
Yeah, but, I appreciate which, that. Which is which is an interesting thought, but I just don't know what it actually amount, amounts to in actual political practice. So this is my general critique of this piece was that as far as political practice goes, it doesn't really offer anything, but it does offer a, you know, a theoretical argument for abandoning any kind of you know, naturalist argument. It's kind of like a Deleuzian vibe. You know, it's giving you like a like a, an aesthetic and a, a feeling and a universe of concepts and a kind of direction, not a programmatic manifesto. I guess I'm just, you know, someone who's so used to reading like Colin Ty or even Sylvia Federici where they come up with this idea of, oh, let's have, um, you know, domestic labor become collectivized. And I think they do talk about that somewhat in here or let's have wages for housework. Like, there is some kind of political conclusion that comes from the analysis, whereas, you know, this was yeah. kind of just a set of interesting thoughts that you can kind of take on different trajectories, I think, which... I mean, no, nobody ever took up Federici's wages for housework, you know what I mean? No, it's, that yeah, was, I mean that's, that's primarily true. interesting as theory. To be honest, I don't know what else could you expect from, like, academics. That's a good like, point, is, yeah. And I like, also get the sense that they're, that these are programmers writing this, actually. Like or or people well, it was like a collection of like feminists. Well, we're talking it was a lot like about a gathering of feminists who were like academics, that sort of thing. I mean, it's a just... lot about using technology, and part of me like almost saw this as a troll against communizers because it's totally <laughs> advocating the reconfiguration thesis, which is the idea yeah. that no capitalist means of production don't have to be destroyed in the revolution, and we have to start completely fresh. We actually can take these things and change them in positive ways if we have a different, you know, social relation guiding their development. And what's, so, right, what's, you know, we, we can reconfigure the existing means of production in a better way. We don't have to just go complete primo and start from year zero. Well, to give a charitable read to the communizers, which, you know, you could read it in the primo way. There's nothing stopping you. Um, but... It's the sense that this technology was made with the wrong telos, the wrong goal in mind. And so what you will get is domination. And actually, um, the accelerationists and the xenofeminists in particular do kind of address this argument to a degree, or at least they mention it. <laughs> but and, the thing is, technique is just as much a part of forces of production as the actual literal technology, like the way we use these forces of production as well. Well, and so, I, yeah, I was having fun. Uh, is a big factor in how these existing technologies would be used. I mean, I, I was having fun uh, reading this against uh, the last essay in Endnotes Two about programming and how, like, you know, programming is like the logic of capital, basically, and like, and how they're super bummed about it and how there's no way that could be generative. And I mean, I don't know, as like a vibe, like this is obviously a preferable vibe. And the question I mean, is, there's, there's like, so many things that you could make that argument for. You could say that overseas shipping is part of the logic of capital. So well, therefore, there can't be overseas shipping. Well, that but, was literally made in the next issue of Endnotes. I mean, yeah, I guess that argument was actually made. So uh, yeah, <laughs> but which does, which is which gets you to this, you know, you you regress into this idea that you know, communism is just abolishing all alienation and mediations and going back to this organic, you know, community, which is, you know, very, and that's when you actually start kind of entering similarities with the far right in a way. 
the thing about for the fascists is that they actually took this from Marxism. They took this idea of synthesizing the, the species being of humankind with the, the forces of production. What's interesting about the xenofeminists is that they have no patience for species being. They have no patience for an Aristotelian deriving what should be from what is, or like, which is part of what's really attractive about them. But I think also it ends up being a little bit of a problem because it's bending the stick perhaps because yes, there, exactly. there might, there might actually be some essence to humanity that is not simply a socially constructed thing. But if you look at their line of argument, it makes perfect sense to disavow that because yeah, exactly. But for the purpose, yeah, exactly for the purpose of the argument they're trying to make, which is right. that we need to de we need to end like appeals to nature and arguments regarding gender. That yeah, that makes I, sense. I I think the thing that grounds this essay, and it's never explicitly stated, but it's what it's a premise in my head that they're responding to, that I think is there, is that human nature has patriarchy kind of built in yeah that, like there no, that's there is, the argument there is that every part right is makes. like yeah there but like and the whole point of this essay yeah like, you kind of don't have to argue it, on that terrain because the whole history yeah. of humanity is humans developing productive forces that allow us to you know ma have mastery over nature and not have to obey the laws of nature yeah, I, I want to stress this is such a, this is a much stronger argument than the post-structuralist argument. That's like nature, sex, that shit doesn't even exist. What you know what I mean? Like this, this is a much stronger response. It's like so what? Technology makes it irrelevant. We're we're changing our nature, which is actually something that's that is in species being. Like believe it or not, the like concept of like human, human like it's like a feedback loop like basically yeah, what makes humans unique change. is that we produce essentially is that we create new forms of production that change both nature that we reproduce so that we we're able to change the conditions of our own reproduction as a species by producing new forms of you know technology we, basically we essentially change our own nature like even if it's unintentional we still manage to do it and like like um even at the bio, even at like the biological level, like it's unavoidable. Really, like there's like, like environmental factors for like, for like the way genes turn on and gene traits turn on and off. That's like referred to as epigenetics, mm -hmm. and that like renders like a major blow to like biological determinism. Is that even on a biological? Yeah just biological level we are changing ourselves and like the environmental factors that are around us still matter yeah like epigenetic stuff and well i mean but here's the thing behavioral and symbolic kind of like human life that is part is biological to a certain degree like that is what our organism brings to the table that allows us to do the culture stuff to do the the rest of the stuff yeah the fact that we evolved into having the characteristics that we have and uh, that's the thing i don't even know that they would totally disagree with but certainly rhetorically they don't have any time for like this aristotle thing we look at the organism to figure out what would be good for it like um look, I, I think this is inherent in marxism basically like i think that that's like it's one of the things that marx gets from classical philosophy that yeah and i think it's, it's something that the structuralist marxists really want to get away from but they end up 
kind of ruining Marxism in a way in the process because they take away any kind of ethical or humanistic, you know, level at which Marxism can be an appealing argument. It's simply, this is what has to happen because of the, you know, the needs for the relations of production to change, for the forces of production to develop. It unironically, like, creates the kind of Marxism that they portray the Second International as being. The way they say that Stalinism is like the revenge of the Second International because it's just like reverting to this obsession with the productive forces. And Lenin was brilliant because he saw the the preeminence of the relations of production over the productive forces, which I think history, that's just nonsense. He never makes any argument like that. And he makes it very clear that, you know, the development of socialism in Russia relies on, you know, developing the forces of production. And that's why, you know, revolution has to spread. But um, honestly, I don't know. I don't know if people are reading the structuralists or they're reading um, the second international or they're reading like, any of this stuff very charitably because i mean if, if you're looking if you look at the xenofem argument and you're looking at the accelerationists more generally very few of them are saying technology will fix this for us yeah there's very few marxists that actually believe that thesis and um yeah of what is what I is i don't think Karl kotsky even thinks that you know but, but i do think that even in like the most vulgar stalinist terms what we're seeing happening with gender the forces of production that develop birth control safer abortions, uh, better maternity care so less women die, uh, uh, then hormone replacement therapy, uh, organ change surgeries, like the forces of production open up the possibilities for the relations of production, which open up, which, you know, change the nature of the base, which creates a new superstructure. And I mean, I just like the old model kind of works incredibly well in this instance. Yeah. Like, yeah, you can even, like, the, like, birth pranks of a new mode of production or, like, can be found in, like, the development of computers and that sort of thing. Like, it's there. It's just supercomputers and the internet and that sort of thing. It's, it's there, and, like, on a biological level, it's, like, there in terms of, like, these developments in medicine that allow for, like a new form of social life to come out of just new forms of like familial, well, not familial communal relations, I guess. I don't know what you would call it post family, like social rearing, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Something. I guess you could just call it kinship. I mean, I'm gonna do it. Because they, they do kind of, they don't make the argument that, oh, we need to abolish the family by force by, you know, like, you know, separating babies from their mothers. They say that, like, <laughs> as humans are freed from the constraints of gender, new forms of kinship will develop, essentially. If that makes sense. Yeah, I like their typology for, uh, for forms of the family that exist, or forms of social reproduction that exist. They have, like, nuclear family, commune, or single parenting. Yeah. That's it. And to- I mean, that's just a prediction. Another thing they also hit on in here is that we shouldn't be really afraid to envision what the future might be and have a, just this vision of pure negation. And that we should actually kind of think about, you know, how modern technology sets the stage for a new mode of production and think about how, from there, how to envision what a new liberatory future might look like. And I think that's something that the left really lacks today. 
Yeah. And it's, it's, it's easier to talk about than to actually do. That's the thing. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's it, we're, we're all pretty cynical. You know, when we try to imagine the future, it's, it's for doing like a black mirror fan scripts rather than for trying to imagine something that we think will actually work. We yeah. Think, we think of something that should work and then imagine how it'll get ruined. We, yeah, and, we need to rehabilitate our utopian imaginary or else, I mean, and, pe- and people often respond to that with, yeah, but I mean, things can't get better. So, well, well they just pointed to the history of the 20th century. It's, but it's not, the not, thing not, is that, you know, right 20th century, but <laughs> I mean, yeah, the 20th century was a shit show. And I don't think that there's any guarantee that the future won't be. Yeah, I don't think that yeah, pure negation goes fucking anywhere. Your yeah, there's not going to be this pure, perfect society ever, I don't think. No. There's, I never, never to, there's never going to be this world where there's no alienation. Everyone has complete control over everything that happens to them. And, you know, we all, you know, just have, you know, we just want something and then it just comes to us magically. Like, you're always going to have a technical division of labor, I think. You can get rid of the class division of labor, but there's still going to be a technical division of labor. It just can be made and so that it's not there's no class hierarchy between those who do the grunt work and those who do intellectual labor. Or you're still going to have some kind of technical division of labor. You're going to have to have organization of society. And this is all things that involve mediation and you know what some people might go as far to describe as bureaucracy. That is kind of a betrayal of what Marx genuine like in German ideology, you know the passage. Yeah, and I know, but but is the German ideology the sure. last word for Marx on this subject? I think that, you know, the German ideology wasn't even meant to be published. I think that, you know, it's... I mean, I think in the lower phrase, yeah, that's still going to exist. But at the same time, I would hope that, like, you know, a combination of, like, machinery and, like, the larger reduction of work hours and, like, the whole process becoming more efficient would allow people to have more free time and enjoy themselves and pursue th- like you wouldn't need to have like an intellectual division of labor at that point because you would have just people like going about their lives and they would be able to do things in their free time like you you could be like both sort of like a a worker who does like these like basic tasks or whatever and be like an intellectual because you have like you have hours of free time. And that's well, the point thing. is that the division of labor becomes abolished, not because there's no longer a technical division of labor, but because humans have equal access to the skills that are required to run these, you know, to, to run society. But there's no more longer specialization as a, a privileged part of society. It's no longer privileged cast in society that raises you above, you know, other humans. And instead all humans are able to become specialized in different things. And no one has just one specialization that they're, you know, forced to do for the rest of their life. I think it would come from like the amount of free time that people would get under communism. To get that free time, you're going to have to have a lot of, it's going to be a lot of reconfiguration and re- development of society and that's going to require a lot of work i mean like increasing automation of production would come in also to make but whatever you know the techno utopian whatever we have cast our lot in with technology i mean um yeah of course it's 
the whole promise of communism for Marx is kind of predicated on the fact that capitalism raises the level of productivity that allows you to lower work hours. And so in a way, part of communism is utilizing planning to fully uh, reduce work hours, basically. Yeah, there is, um, there's a passage, what is it? Zero X zero two that kind of recalls, uh, Angela Davis's version of, of an argument in uh, the approaching obsolescence of housework where she, I don't know, when I was learning this, it was from someone who was, you know, very critical of this techno Stalinist line that, you know, productive forces are going to solve everything, yada, yada. But uh, I mean, Angela Davis has a good point. Like, Hey, we have all this amazing technology and uh, not very much of it is used to reduce household drudgery mm -hmm. when, when it is used to reduce household drudgery then the amount of work that someone is expected to do at once increases as well. So there's a communist solution in the productive forces and in the production relations that needs to happen with housework. And even the, the simple technological solutions of capitalism could be better applied to housework. Why is that such a low priority? Yeah, exactly. It's just that the productive forces on their own don't provide the solution, but rather we have to imagine a new way of utilizing them. Yeah, I, I remember this like part of like, um, what is it, the century of the self, where like, uh, like basically they were talking about how like, like baking kits were sold to like housewives in like the 50s and 60s. And basically, initially, they were, like, having problems selling them because, like, they couldn't really figure out why, but housewives weren't really buying these, like, easy-bake kits for, like, cakes and that sort of thing. They were having a hard time figuring this out. And then they did, like, focus groups where, basically, they, they figured out that the women weren't, like, really, like, feeling like they were doing enough work and, like... Yeah, Edward Bernays was like, yeah, uh, just just make them put an egg in because eggs symbolize their ovaries and, and they have eggs. So it's mo <laughs> more motherly. Oh, my God. And rather yeah. than going with the obvious answer of like weird Protestant work ethic, making them feel guilt for having easier, slightly easier lives, um, just just. No, specifically the egg will do. Uh, anyways, it still managed to work. It still managed to work. And that that's why you have to put an egg in, even though it's uh, not really required. And that sort of thing is like worked throughout capitalism, basically. Like people are like, like just sort of like this ideology is like reinforced into them like pushed upon them basically that like work is the only thing that like really makes things valuable yeah. there is i think there is some truth to the protestant work ethic but i think it's you know obviously it's capitalism comes then the protestant work ethic comes but there's a interesting book called the new spirit of capitalism that argues that the kind of protestant work ethic spirit of capitalism and this hierarchical fordist capitalism has been replaced neoliberal capitalism which is more decentralized and more horizontalist i guess than this vertical fordist you know bureaucratic capitalism and you know i think there's some truth to this and they kind of say that may 68 is a kind of the um turning point and when this new uh 
spirit of capitalism develops but basically capitalism becomes you know more possibilities for gender fluidity exist for example and you know there's more there's this kind of just it's, it's no longer so much about a protestant work ethic as it is about this idea of actualizing yourself in the market in a lot of cases i'm not sure how much this is just um universalizing european and american conditions a misreading of what neoliberalism is but i think it's an interesting idea that maybe capitalism doesn't always have to necessarily use a protestant work ethic but that can create new ethics of work and labor that are you know more suited for different phases of development and structures uh, it's I think crystal clear that capitalism doesn't require one certain religious work ethic and that it's capable of taking on all kinds of um, other justifications for the same thing. (laughs) Like, and that there are cultural differences in capitalist behaviors to a point, but even religions that might have things that are explicitly anti, you know, whatever the proto-capitalism was, uh, that can be adapted quite easily. They all they all can be uh, at the end of the day. Let's see. I wanted to segue a bit to Donald. You're saying that there's not much praxis here, and yeah, yeah. There's there's not a lot of positive politics here. But what there is is a sort of intervention in online politics. You know what one might call the discourse. Uh, the xenofeminists are a sort of internal critique of contemporary internet feminism and, and queer like identity politics. Yeah, that's kind of what I saw it as. It's kind of like, all right, listen, Tumblr kids, this is what it's really all about. So they're, they're, they're universalists, they're rationalists, they're technophiles. And you know, stop trying to say that, you know, if you make fun of witchcraft, you're attacking queer people. Really, like, rationality is not just for boys like it's a it's it's a very much a rejection of a lot of gender essentialist arguments that get accidentally made in feminist discourse today yeah i think it's interesting that i don't know masculine hormonal cycle apparently totally rational you know no one no one thinks that testosterone could possibly make people irrational yeah that's something that i've never quite got well, that's just complete nonsense. As I mean, you know, like, as someone who's a man, yes, testosterone can make you very irrational. I mean, yeah, yeah, like you know, estrogen isn't necessarily just like you know rationality juice either. But hormones, you know, they do shit to you. They're drugs. <laughs> like, there's a line here that says, "Science is not an expression, but a suspension of gender," which is a fun way of saying how something should be. I do think there is a sort of like domination principle at work with a lot of scientific inquiry, especially when you get into like animal testing or something that I think people have a point is related to some like process of domination that seems more, you know, masculine if you wanted to do that. Yeah, they make that point that it's because science is dominated by men and is in a patriarchal social is is socialized in a patriarchal way so it's not necessary that science be this way and that it's not necessary to reject science in order to you know reject the patriarchal aspects of modern science yeah things that are stereotypically feminine traits can be like rational like being compassionate and that sort of thing 
Like, that's not necessarily a trait that goes against rationality. Compassion and cooperation can be very rational traits. And when you look at, like, things like driving, like, the reason why a car insurance is more expensive for, like, teenage boys than it is for teenage girls is because teenage girls tend to be socialized to be less aggressive. And because of that, they're less reckless drivers. They're less fits of rage that would like cause them to just fuck up road rage and that sort of thing. So yeah, these stereotypically feminine traits are often very rational. It's just that they don't get credit for being rational. In terms of rationalism versus empiricism, you know, which is just generalizing from the details or not even generalizing sometimes. They touch on intersectionality a bit. A lot of what intersectionality in contemporary discourse tends to be is looking at specific empirical instances of multiple oppressions, but not trying to extrapolate from that at all. What I think is interesting here is that the, in general, bias and attitudes, I, I don't know, there's this one book that looked at a bunch of old philosophers and asked, are they racist? Was Kant a racist? Was Leibniz a racist? You know, um, and one thing that they noticed is that the more rationalist somebody tended to be, the less racist they they would be. Um, and it kind of makes sense in the in this way that like scientific racism takes a lot of its cues from the the empirical differences or the uh, taking on social hierarchies as you know taking them as given more whereas oh, yeah it's vulgar empiricism where you just look at the raw data and the data speaks for itself yeah this kind of and an, this notion of an enlightened rationalism can open up these liberatory possibilities beyond you know the the empirical sexual dimorphism that's there yeah and i think the problem with a lot of intersectionality is that yeah it's looking at individual empirical cases where oppressions intersect and it's very hostile to making any kind of generalizations from those cases because therefore you're making abstractions from that individual concrete experience. And in that process of making abstractions and generalizations, you're kind of doing violence to their, you know, concrete individual experience. And the truth is that to understand these forms of domination, we have to make abstractions and look at the social systems that reproduce them. In the in their defense, what they're objecting to, I, I I think the the charitable way of looking at that tendency, what happens when you extrapolate principles from one instance and another instance is that sometimes you'll start getting principles that conflict, and this can be in, invalidating, and that's the cardinal sin that they're attempting to circumvent. Cubonics says this is well-intentioned. This is all coming from a good place, of course, but this is insufficient. We have to be able to do stuff like this. And so implicitly they are saying, you know, we, uh, we have to be able to say some people are, some people's extrapolated principles are correct. Some of them are not. Yeah. For I everybody, that, for everyone. I think that a problem with a lot of left critiques of identity politics is they kind of assume that people are always coming from a bad place and that it's always just opportunistic usage of personal identity to broker more power or whatever. But perhaps maybe, you know, a lot of id Paul or whatever is actually coming from people's legitimate oppressions and that we should understand, you know, that that's actually what's going on here.
in that we need to kind of do a materialist analysis of these actual oppressions, but not try to, you know, discredit their importance. That makes sense. Because a lot of uh, leftist critiques of id Paul just say, no, we just need to focus more on class and workerism and whatnot and try to kind of basically kind of forget like a key component of Marxism, which is that the point is that the liberation of the proletariat is the liberation of all humans, despite, you know, race or gender. And that it's because the proletariat has this potential universalism that you can have a truly emancipatory society. And that, you know, as Lenin says, you know, the communists should condemn all forms of oppression, regardless of who, what class the victim is, because, you know, we have to be opponents of all forms of oppression. And it's it's so ironic that the divide and conquer argument will come out of the mouths of people that are not recognizing the material divisions in people and then get mad when you symbolically draw attention to these material divisions. Like, if you really believe the divide and conquer argument, which I do, that, you know, there's all kinds of different ways of doing hierarchy and stratification that contribute to the infighting and the weakness of the proletariat. You have to look at that stuff structurally. If you really mm -hmm. care about that stuff, you will acknowledge it. Yeah. Acknowledging it doesn't, doesn't dissolve class unity. The reality of that stratification dissolves class unity. <laughs> and I think... Um the identity politics of the new left kind of had to happen in a way because the way that the labor movement had shaped out to be by the 1950s was this very white male centric subject. And because of all their, you know, oppressed groups that were excluded from the social contract that the labor movement was able to win to be integrated in society. And so because you had these outsider groups, you know, like um, gays and, you know, black people were excluded from the New Deal and women were kind of forced back into a domestic subordinate role. But the white male worker was able to, you know, take home a good deal. So, in fact, it seems like, in a way, identity politics was a necessary revolt against this kind of, you know, narrow-minded workerism that had come to define left politics. And so I guess, and like that goes back to the idea of kind of deconstructing a universalism to create a new one on top of it, I guess. Yeah, very frequently when people are whining about, you know, identity politics being a distraction from class, their notion of class is so, you know, depleted of content and their notion of communism very regularly takes on a lot of the sort of Lasallian statist sins of 20th century socialism in that like if you have socialism in one country in one territory you ha have to rely on a nation state and you have the nation state you want to end up doing some kind of population productivism and you also want to there to be stable units for you know domestic peace both of those things feed into the family you, it, there is a connection there's a serious connection oh yeah definitely like and, there's a reason why stalinism came with what trotsky called you know a gender thermidor because yeah. 
Stalin took up this very nationalist, productivist project. In order to do that, he had to reinform, you know, the nuclear family as a sort of unit of production in order to reinforce the nuclear family as a sort of unit of production in order to well, go on this kind of primitive accumulation. I, I wouldn't say reform the nuclear family. Like, Stalinism created the nuclear family in Russia. Like, before then, they had, like, peasant family life, which was pre-capitalist and even more patriarchal. There was a breakdown in this, like, family structure that happened, like, during the Russian Revolution, and then it, like, went back to, like, sort of this productive nuclear family-style situation. Yeah, that makes sense. Also, I think these critiques of identity politics are not really Marxist so much as they are Nietzschean, like, specifically a kind of critique of slave morality, as you will. Because, like, the way Nietzschean, the Nietzschean critique of slave morality works is that slave morality is an attempt to, like, by the, like, weak and sort of, like, inferior to, like, prop themselves up using guilt. They use guilt to control the stronger, the more... I mean, maybe this is kind of well, a butchering that's definitely, of it, but... That's definitely the right-wing critique of identity politics, I would say. Yeah, like using guilt to create this slave morality that allows people to get more than what they deserve, and so you know, there's this uh, god, there's just so many, and this plays into the whole cathedral thing with Nick Land. But the thing is, these right wing arguments can play into left wing arguments as well, and a lot of times, like some leftists don't really sound different from rightists when they're critiquing identity politics. Well, I I would want to draw attention to this, the trap section, uh, 0x09. By the way, the fact that there's a section called trap reinforces my feeling that this was written by like transfem programmers. Anyway, um, so in the beginning, there is a sort of twin dismissal of illusion and melancholy, um, which I think there's a pretty Nietzschean streak here. Uh, illusion is the Christian illusion where the meek inherit the earth. Melancholy is the passive kind of nihilism, the, you know, total bummer, like kind of, it's kind of, this sort of the end point of where Western civilization has kind of ended up, you know, ah, Christianity isn't true. Um, our secular version of Christianity didn't work out. That's sad. We're sad now. This is sad. Like, it's a critique of both of these dot like I, these dominant strands of Western culture. These are the two configurations that are most prominent and they're both intensely structured around Christianity. I think that and what they end up critiquing in online spaces at their purity. I think this part has an Ishe and streak. I mean, not gonna lie, there is some level of truth to the whole slave morality thing. Like, oh, yeah. not in terms, like, not in terms of like making the weak seem, but like the petty bourgeois, like these sort of like sort <laughs> of like strong people pretending to be weak in order to gain like some moral ground. Well, that that's amongst um, leftist circles. That's um, there is some level of truth to that. Not gonna lie, I've seen it happen. So yeah, you're right. That's uh, what Mark Fisher invokes in his uh, Empire vampire castle, castle. when he says, "Setting the vampire castle." Yeah, that they're that um that they're 
will be all these technologies of torture developed by Christianity to make the strong seem weak, that there will be something even worse in Christianity that comes afterwards using all of these barbaric medieval torture devices. Which, yeah, uh, like, that, hmm, I, you know, there's. And the other day, the other day, like two days ago, I saw this fucking Jacobin social democratic hack who, who's been on like Chapo just referenced like in the same t- sentence where he's like doing a call out about some guy used cunt once or whatever. That was like the, the guy got called out for it and was kicked out. And, you know, that guy who's like used the C word was referenced like the vampire castle in response to like having like all these people just shit on him for it and he's like how dare you use mark fisher's name like that exiting the vampire castle wasn't intended to defend that sort of language and the guy obviously did not read the vampire castle because literally literally the first part of it is actually defending russell brandon is that the name of the comedian it's Russell Brand. Russell like, Brand act because he had made sexist jokes in the past, but he was trying to yeah. kind of raise and himself it, up as a you know a figure of the left. Yeah, like basically, like the first part of it is like defending defending him from like accusations of sexism, being like, yeah, this is kind of like just policing proletariat language, and you know he acknowledges that, yeah. In the end, he, he probably does have some sexist tendencies because that's the environment that he grew up in. And even if it's not intentional, that's something that's going to be there. And, you know, defending some dumb celebrity is kind of embarrassing going back now. But the points still ultimately hold up. Like, you're not going to be able to, like, completely, like just sort of like wipe away all the like personal bigotries and that sort of thing that people have. Even if you try really, really hard, like that doesn't mean you shouldn't like try not to be racist and shit like that, but you got to be a little bit more moralistic about it. Little less moralistic about it when you have like people actively trying not to be awful. It's the idea that you can police language out of existence and language is oppression. So therefore we can kind of, and, and Twitter serves as a way for people to police people's language almost because yeah, like, the Twitter group hive mind is a very real thing and people want to kind of, you know, signal yeah. their, you know, so how, even, you know, even as this guy is like ref, uh, referencing the, exiting the vampire castle and invoking his name when he clearly did not read the essay. It's, it's just, and enforcing the thing that Mark Fisher was railing against. Eh, And it's just people. It's horribly depressing. It's yeah. And this guy, it's not like the guy doing the tweet was like, like, um, small fish either he was on chapo he was like the guy that they always bring up to do healthcare. i forget his name like something faust tim faust actually fucking read the essay faust you fucking idiot (laughs) i can definitely see why some people had a a negative reaction the vampire castle initially but 
I think it was a needed intervention. And the whole idea of that it was Mark Fisher secretly far right and loves Nick Land. And this is his attempt to kind of like soften the left to fascism. It's like, no, there's actually some cultural dynamics in the left that are very self-isolating and very alienating. And this should probably be looked at. Here is what Mark wanted to do. He did want to conceptually create a tool for talking about this in the same way that Nick Land did for the, with the cathedral or, or mold bug or whatever. Like that is what he wanted to do. But I don't think that's like a bad idea. Like we have to be able to name these dynamics and I don't want to call it the cathedral. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would have called the cathedral and the vampire castle are very different though. Like yes. it's just like sort of a Gothic name thing. That's like what's similar in some slave morality. The cathedral in Nickland and the Dark Enlightenment specifically is something that's fueled by like democracy out of control, or as Nickland refers to it, the zombie apocalypse, which has no empirical basis whatsoever. It's literally just a sort of mythology that's built up around like democracy as this violent mob rule, mob rule. When that's just that's just straight up class struggle at that point, but like. Yeah the idea that like democracy is what led to the point that we are in and the point that we are in socialistic nightmare. It's literally just Fox news talking points combined with like weird elements of like, like the conspiracy theory yeah. about cultural Marxism. Yeah. Like, it's like, but Moldbug is basically saying that um, the communists actually won because of cultural Marxism. He just calls cultural Marxism, a cathedral he basically says that yeah. democracy and communism are the same thing. And because we can't say the N-word anymore, we don't have, like, communism has won. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we can't talk about human biodiversity, you mean. It's, it's, not, it's not that crude, cruel race Bolshevism that the Nazis have. It's human biodiversity. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> scientific. They so, always try to rename it in weird ways. Yeah. So to kind of, I don't know, spin this back to uh, Xenofem, like I do think there's a sort of, there's a vaguely libertarian tendency in this text. Like that it even goes as far to kind of celebrate DIY, like hormone marketization and, and like, you know, gender hacks on the internet. Cause, cause you can't get it through a bureaucracy. Like, you know, like getting your estrogen on dark web or something. You know what I mean? There is a sort of like libertarian vibe that's in here, there. But also in the part where it's gently pushing back on social justice culture <laughs> and kind of advocating for a politics that is comfortable with technology as it is, which is a bit of a coded way of saying, hey, we can't be that sensitive we need a some kind of targeted rational project here you need to be hard bolsheviks the funny thing they is, wouldn't phrase it that way i, I, don't, I would phrase I, it that way. i don't think you should phrase it that way because the internet makes us weak soft squishy like yeah. and it does it to you know like some people get super you know the shit that desensitizes them but uh but it also kind of, yeah. I don't know, it fundamentally kind of wires people in a certain way that makes them vulnerable. It's infantilizing. That's what it, that's what the sort of culture does in a yeah. way. It's like infantilizing, like, oh yeah, all these 
all these weird cultural things suddenly become your best friend. Like a superhero movie's a progressive look. They have a black person in it. Wow. Uh, all these superhero films, uh, just popcorn sci-fi shit. That's all. That's all friendly. That's all your friends, and this is your friend. You can you can just describe things in terms of like Harry Potter and shit like that. Yeah, it's incredibly infantilizing, and it goes through like all of it really. Like there's a weird obsession with like sort of like therapy culture. Last social justice discourse. I mean, it, it was more intense like a year or two ago, but it's still there. It still lingers on. Like, you definitely don't see like trigger warning discourse anymore, things like that. But you'll still have like people have like these huge arguments over like honestly words that are kind of meaningless or like only matter like on like certain parts of the internet and shit like that it's just it's honestly kind of embarrassing really yeah I mean, but i think that the only reason it's kind of gotten better is because more of the left has actually gotten outside and interacted with other people and i think a lot of people have kind of realized all right wait a second like what works on twitter doesn't really work in you know actual organizing with people in meat space I mean, I hope so. I mean, it's kind of hypocritical for me because I'm, I haven't been. That's just me being optimistic, but you know, obviously a lot of horrible, like opportunistic identity politics happens in the IRL left. Yeah. I don't like cartoons and certain things like that, but it's like, at the same time, I understand there's a lot of weird infantilization about it and it's appealing to like sort of the most like simplistic emotions in people. Yeah, and there's also because, this like, like what Christopher Lash called the culture of narcissism, which I think is a very real thing. It's a real thing, but Lash spends his t- like the book like shaking his fist at something that's an emergent condition. Yeah, of, that's my problem with Lash is that he acts like Freudo Marxist. The world, yeah. <laughs> like he just, he just he just can't I mean he's I, can't, I don't really blame him for being frustrated for seeing like some kind of whatever familial ethic to degenerate into narcissism because honestly that kind of narcissism has affected my life so deeply Mm -hmm. and totally. And having that in my family is, is, is awful. It's destructive. I can see why people would react to contemporary narcissism that way. Well, yeah. Reactionaries are just reacting to the alienation of contemporary society from an anti-universalistic standpoint, whereas the left is reacting from a universalistic standpoint. Or should be. Or, yeah, should be. (laughs) I mean, I I do think that there are ways of constructing a left that that have that weird Heideggerian streak. I mean, honestly, that's that's what the last, like, what, 50 years of left-wing standpoints have been? Definitely hit its peak in, like, the 90s, particularly like with the anti-globalization movement and that sort of thing. Like you had like on one hand, like this sort of like emerging left of like anti-globalization movement, anarchist, like just this sort of post-left anarchism, that sort of thing. And then you had like this small group of people like with the CCRU is just sitting there worshiping the 
the like rise of neoliberalism as like this coming apoc cyberpunk apocalypse that would hopefully destroy all of humanity. Like that's what <laughs> essentially original ex- OG accelerationism was a death cult. Like let's 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 not mince words. It was a death cult. It was a death, death cult of neoliberalism. Yeah, it was a death cult of deterritorialization markets and like fucking yeah. watching too many science fiction movies and too I mean, much I kind of like drugs. Is this kind of post-punk yeah, almost? It, it's cool, <laughs> but, um, but it it's it's not what we exist in. Yeah, there was one it's thing not, the, I read the acceleration manifesto, the accelerationist manifesto, and there was one. There was a, some like. There was some good stuff in there, you know, the critique of what they call folk politics, which is yeah. kind of yeah. what we were talking about earlier, this organic, like, Volk that, you know, everyone is alienated from. We just return to this organic community and how the left kind of has this, you know, small is good, local is good, you, you know, anti-technology, anti-science viewpoint in many cases. You know, we just need to decentralize everything and become more local and you know capitalism is bad because it makes big corporations and monopolies and you know that kind of viewpoint what they what they call folk politics i think is a plague in the left that needs to be destroyed and i think it is partially a reaction to the failures of actually existing socialism because it was very much you know actually existing socialism was very much you know based its reputation on its industrialization capabilities and stuff and central planning. And so folk politics, I guess, is kind of what we were talking about earlier with his desire to escape all forms of mediation and alienation. Whereas, as they say in this, you know, in the Xenofeminist Manifesto, like, our freedom is, our freedoms and our ability to be free are based on alienation in a way. They're based on social relationships outside our control. Yeah, I mean, if you think of the way commodities work, and the spectacle works these things have taken a lot from our existence and in a way have expropriated some kind of natural wholeness by refracting our entire lives that these things are more important than us in a way like this the romantics have a point right it does put us in a position where something that was about a material reproductive process you know gender like really does become something more emergent and detachable. It does create a situation where not just like a small part of our population can transgress a gender binary or try to exist in a you know different space or whatever, like, but a, a, a lot of people could, and a lot more people are. This is kind of an unprecedented development. I don't yeah. want to overstate what's going on, this is a very interesting confirmative case of orthodox historical materialism where the forces of production have fundamentally transformed the relations of production, has fundamentally transformed ways of life and superstructure and yeah. the ways people represent themselves to themselves. Reactionary anti-capitalists make the same point kind of that absolutely it's because of our alienation from nature due to industry that all of this crazy gender bending is possible and, you know, we just need to get back to nature and get back to our roots and everything will be right. 
and natural. And so, you know, nature becomes just an ideology of domination as new forms of emancipation become emergent. And so as, you know, more people are able to become trans and come out of the closet, there is, um, you know, there's a regression, there's a, um, there's a, a counter-revolution sort of against it and a desire to return to tradition in re reaction to it that's often fueled by this kind of, you know, what Reich kind of described as this um, sexual repression that is still part of the social reproduction of society. And so there's a contradiction here between the need to maintain a family unit to make capitalism function you know, and then at the same time, the ability of capitalism to break down traditional structures. And so the two kind of exist within a contradiction where, yes, there's more gender freedom, but at the same time, there is, um, you know, a reaction to this to kind of return to traditional gender norms. And you see tons of, and that's what a lot of far-right politics really does come from, is, you know, people being angry about feminism and angry about gender bending. In terms of description, we have more in common with them than people that think a collapse of the productive forces is conducive to gender freedom. Definitely. There's a reason why people call anarcho-primitivist forest turfs. Like, <laughs> like that's it's completely true. That's it for this week. Next week, we have the pleasure of having on one of my podcast heroes, Tom O'Brien. He's one of maybe three Marxists that knows math. I'm super excited about it. We're discussing modern monetary theory. You really can't miss that one. I'll get mad. Like us on Facebook. Listen on SoundCloud. Email at swampsidechats at gmail.com. And keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. And dodge this. <laughs> Got you all in check. Uh -huh. Who's